The most valuable asset is not the language itself. Those things always change. You could be thrown into a code base you're not familiar with. You could be thrown into a language you're not familiar with. You could be thrown into a section of technology that you're not familiar with. And it's more about being open-minded and being really curious about it. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. This is a weekly show where one week I interview a recently hired junior developer and then the next week an expert like a senior dev or recruiter so that you can learn how to break into tech from both sides. I'm your host, Alex Booker, and today I'm joined by Laura Torson from GitHub. Laura took a chance on the first coding bootcamp ever back in 2013. Since then, she's gone on to make an impact at companies we all know and respect like Salesforce, Meta, Twitter, and now GitHub. She's also been interviewed briefly about her story learning to code by NPR and Forbes magazine. Needless to say, I'm very excited to bring you this episode where we go in depth about Laura's career so far and her best advice for new developers. It's fascinating, by the way, how fortune favors the bold. Laura took a chance on a bootcamp all of those years ago, and without revealing too much, she also kind of bombed a coding interview at a fan company, but sent a follow-up email asking for another chance, which they gave her that ultimately resulted in the job. I love these stories by Laura because yes, career advice is important and there's plenty of good stuff here for you today, but it's these stories about taking a chance and that chance paying off that inspire us to take that leap ourselves. Sometimes that's the only way. We'll get into it in just a second, but first I want to remind you to please share the episode with a friend, a group, or on social media. Word of mouth is the only way this free podcast with no ads reaches new listeners. So thank you in advance. You are listening to the Scrimba podcast. Let's get into it. I don't even think I knew what coding was. I'm a kid of the 90s. And so we weren't really aware of what the internet was back then. So I went to college at UCLA. I got started at UCLA actually as a music major. I got a full ride scholarship to play the oboe and was the only person that was actually accepted to play the oboe in my graduating class in the whole country. So it was like a lot of pressure. (laughs) I loved playing the oboe and it was really fun, but I was also really struggling with wanting to be, you know, a college student going to football games and being a part of sororities. And I really wanted to be in an acapella group because I also sing. And so I was just feeling a lot of the pressure of, you know, being being paid literally to be the primary oboist at the university. And so I ended up switching a couple times my major and it finally ended with English. I didn't really know what I was going to do with an English degree. I thought about becoming a teacher, but that hadn't really like felt like a good fit. I thought about, you know, going to law school and there were all these different things I was kind of thinking about in my final semester at UCLA. And then actually it was my mom who found an article in I think it was Time Magazine about these coding boot camps. There was this coding boot camp in San Francisco. It was the first one of its kind. And it was championing that it would be able to teach you how to code in like 12 weeks or so and get you an engineering opportunity. I had never really thought about that as an option. But as I kind of learned a little bit more about it, I was like, you know... 
coding is kind of just like learning another language, right? There's syntax and there are rules about how it works. And um, and so I was kind of like, you know, I'm going to be play around a little bit with coding. And so what's actually really funny is that I decided to take a class, like an intro to C class at UCLA, and I actually failed it. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to do coding. Like, this is not for me. But then I applied for this coding boot camp. It was dev boot camp at the time. And they were teaching Ruby and Ruby on Rails. That was kind of like the hot new language at the time. I applied and I got in and I was kind of like actually looking at Ruby and Ruby is a lot more forgiving, obviously, than C. Oh, yeah. It really was like writing English and writing in a language that made a lot more sense. And so even just playing around on Code Academy with Ruby, I was already kind of falling in love with the experience. I was just blown away that I could write something in code and then I would click enter and the computer would compile something for me and I could see a result. Now I know that a lot was stripped away from that process. But if anything, I was really grateful that a lot was stripped away so that I could come to fall in love with Ruby as a language, with coding as an experience and kind of the high that you get from writing a even a brief program and seeing it work. The experience of trying to navigate solving a problem and figuring out where the bug is and then, you know, getting an answer. It just like was such a satisfying experience that I fell in love with it. So I graduated from UCLA in 2013. And then in September, I moved up to San Francisco and started the program. Yeah, it was like a total whirlwind <laughs> of an experience, but it was really, really fun. Was it a hard decision to enroll in the boot camp? I mean, you just finished uni and obviously boot camps cost a lot of money. You must have had pretty high conviction that coding was something you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, I'd already talked to one of my mom's very good family friends who had actually studied engineering and computer programming at the same university 30, 40 years prior. She was telling me stories of, you know, walking to class and carrying all of her cards with her literal, you know, coding program on them and how you had to make sure that you filed each individual card into the computer properly. Otherwise, your program would break. And if you dropped your card, Cards. Your whole program was, you know, kind of in trouble. And just the concept that you had to have these on physical cards was just kind of wild to me. I had ended up having that conversation and then I started to kind of play around with it. There's, you know, Harvard has classes, their CS 101 classes are available for free and Stanford has a program available for free too. So I started kind of playing around with that, but that wasn't quite as easy of a jump in as, you know, starting with something like Code Academy or even Scrimba. I think Scrimba is a lot more approachable. These Harvard and Stanford CS courses are kind of, you know, you're literally getting into setting up a a Linux machine on your computer. And if you have no idea what you're looking at, you won't even be writing a program at all. You're just too busy trying to get your machine set up. And that, I think, can be really discouraging. I had played with that and I was enjoying the feeling of like trying to do something. Looking back, I hadn't really done anything, but <laughs> I was curious about it. And I think that curiosity really sparked the desire to want to be in this boot camp. And then I think also the boot camp was very approachable. They made it seem very very much like, you know, it's okay if you don't really know what you're doing. That's what we're here for. So I felt very confident that I had tested enough to kind of see if I was even remotely interested. I was, and then I felt very supported um, by the boot camp. 
They were very supportive. All the other students in the cohorts were supportive and and willing to teach. I loved peer programming. I just thought that to be like the most fun thing to be solving a problem together and coming up with new ideas. It was so invigorating, you know? Brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it feels really good. This was back in 2013, I think. So definitely one of the original boot camps. It was the first, yeah. The first. Yes. <laughs> it was a risk for sure. Wow. They just had finished their third cohort by the time I joined. And this was pre, you know, Dev Bootcamp got acquired by Kaplan. So this was pre-acquisition. We were in a tiny little, you know, one level building in Chinatown of San Francisco. It was scrappy and it was honestly a really special time. It's one of those things where looking back, you realize, oh, wow, this was very special and unique. And we were at the kind of beginning of the whole boot camp phase. Now they're very popular. A lot of people do boot camps to get into tech, which is great. But I know that certain companies were willing to talk to me in an interview simply because they had never heard of this as an option. (laughs) So they were just like, what did you do again? And like, tell me why, you know, how do you know how to code? And so, (laughs) so that was kind of a funny thing at the time. Funny, but also impressive. I mean, even today, people wonder if graduating a boot camp is enough of a credential to get a job. Fairly accepted that it is now for many types of developer jobs. But back then, it was totally unfounded territory. Can I ask you, Laura, because it was the first one ever, did you get like a hairline discounts or something like that? Actually, they did provide a discount for underrepresented minorities and uh, gender identities in tech. So that was something that kind of appealed to me because, you know, we just finished paying for my university. So, and after I left being a music major, I was no longer getting a full ride scholarship. That was definitely helpful having a little bit of a discount. Um, I am a, a woman, obviously. I identify as a woman and I also am a minority. I'm half Chinese. So being able to, you know, take advantage of that was definitely something that I appreciated. And it's something I continue to champion as a, as a participant in technology now of, you know, we've done a a good job, but I think we still have much further to go in terms of increasing gender and ethnic minorities in technology. That's really cool. Laura, I really respect that. I'm sure it was still quite expensive. though. (laughs) Yeah, it was not inexpensive at the time. It's cheaper than going to college, which I don't feel like is necessary to become an engineer, but it still was not, you know, the cheapest experience. That's for sure. Coming up on the Scrimba podcast, why you should keep your LinkedIn up to date. Hey, like I saw your profile. I wasn't sure if you were even alive. I was like, oh. I will be right back with Laura. But first, Jan, the producer, and I wanted to read some of your comments about the podcast from Twitter and LinkedIn. We got a couple new reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'm going to read one of them today. It was left two months ago by somebody from the United States, and its title is Epic Host. Alex Booker is such an incredible host. He adds so much value to the conversation with his unique questions and thoughtful responses. Scrimba is lucky to have him, and so are we as listeners. All right, Alex, print this one out and just paste it on your computer screen. And if you ever feel down, you know what to look at. Over on Twitter, Roxana Rodback at Rocks Learns Code says, I'm still catching up on the Scrimba podcast and I reached the one titled Be a Librarian, Not an Encyclopedia. Guess what? I am a librarian and Resourceful is my middle name. I love it. Thanks for the awesome advice, Gil Hernandez and Booker Codes. Yeah, that was a really great episode, actually. And I'm really happy that people are still discovering it and getting value from it. 
Sadiq Farhan says, At this point, listening to the Screamer podcast is going to be a new routine for me. Just listened to the latest episode with Gabriel on how he got an internship at Meta, and it's amazing, filled with details and very helpful. And speaking of that episode, Vanessa at Nessa Roo says, Just listened to the Screamer podcast with Gabriel, and I need to call out what he said about ATS. ATSs are not robots that eliminate resumes unless it's from a knockout question. It's a myth. Recruiters do the reviewing using ATS, which is basically a filing cabinet. Okay, we did have an entire podcast episode about this. It's the one where we interviewed Shannon Brown. Its title is There's a Human Side of Recruiting and Here's How to Get Onto It. And I'm going to link it in the show notes. It all goes into our infamous ATS system. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, it's literally just like a fancy spreadsheet. So if you want to learn more about ATSs and knockout questions and all the things, listen to that one when you finish this one. And if you want to support the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us on Spotify, or tweet about us. If you're learning something from the podcast, share it with others and join the conversation. And now we're back to the interview with Laura. Well, you've gone on to work at some really awesome companies that many people listening know about already and respect, like Salesforce, Twitter, Meta, and most recently GitHub, where you're a program manager. Can you maybe give us a bit of a whirlwind tour of your career and explain and teach how you've gone on to work at these awesome companies? I was in my like last two weeks of dev bootcamp and I received a message on LinkedIn from a recruiter at Salesforce. I had literally just updated my profile on LinkedIn with my, you know, experience at dev bootcamp and my uh, projects that we had worked on at the bootcamp. And this hiring manager invited me to come to Salesforce to their conference, their large conference. So I attended the conference with a couple of my bootcamp grad friends and began the hiring process at Salesforce and was accepted. And so I started out as a demo engineer there. Um, I built custom desktop and mobile demo applications on the Salesforce platform, which we would then give to our sales engineers. And they would use those to pitch to potential customers or to existing customers. Like We would pitch new features and things like that. Honestly, it was kind of crazy. Um, I ended up building a lot of applications. I, I was like the first to complete over 100 demo applications across all of the teams in our demo app M engineering teams across the, the world. Amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And so I was working there for a year and then I got another LinkedIn message from Twitter. And I'll already tell you that pretty much all of my jobs I've gotten from LinkedIn. You know, I've applied to many jobs, but I've only actually gotten jobs through LinkedIn, which is funny to me. But um, I began the interview process at Twitter. And this was back, you know, before Twitter is what it is today. <laughs> um, so I was very thrilled to participate and to maybe be accepted there. And so I got hired as a solutions engineer at Twitter working on our ad tech tech platform. And so Twitter had acquired a, a small little ad tech company called Mopub. I was the primary you know, technical contact for some of those premier advertisers on the platform. I built custom SDK solutions on Android and iOS and just kind of helped you know, work with all of our ad networks, um, Google AdMob and, and Mobi and some of those folks. A year later from that, I was, actually, I was really happy at Twitter. I was having a really good time. I loved my team. And then you know, somebody, again, hiring manager at Facebook, reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in joining the media solutions team as a developer uh, support engineer. 
I was like, yeah, I'd love to work at Facebook. This was pre-meta. So I was like, I'd love to work at Facebook. And it's so interesting because I remember I had my first interview. It went great. And then I meet up with the hiring manager. And then he surprises me with a technical interview, like right there. And I was not prepared. <laughs> I was very nervous. I totally bombed it. It was like, you know, I'd been writing uh, some SDKs in mobile. And I, I had no experience with mobile prior to that. And so I wouldn't call myself and I still would not call myself a mobile developer by any means. But then in this technical interview, it was like, you know, do I write in Ruby? Well, I haven't written Ruby in like two years. And like, do I write it in JavaScript? It's like, well, I don't really write JavaScript right now either. So I felt very nervous. I didn't feel like I had a strong grasp of any of the languages that I would need to like succeed in this technical interview. And I just remember I was so nervous. I bombed it. He like really had to help me through a lot of it. At the end, I just was like, there's no way that I'm getting hired here. Um, it's like a total fail. And then I decided to just email him anyways and thank him for the time. So I did. I emailed the hiring manager and I just said, hey, you know, thank you again for the time. I apologize because I wasn't prepared and I don't feel like that experience really indicates my abilities and, and what I'm capable of. I hope I can get another chance. I understand if I can't. But like, again, I, I'm just really grateful to you for taking the time. And I really appreciated getting to know you and learning more about the opportunity. And I'm, I'm still very interested. I didn't hear from him for like three months. He never responded to my email. And I was just like, okay, like that's the end. I blew it. Like I should get more prepared um, in case I want to do this again. And and then out of nowhere, well, it felt like out of nowhere, but just three months later, I got another email from the hiring manager. Yeah. And he was like, you know, thank you so much for, you know, your email. And like, that was it, I think. And then like a, a few hours later, I got an email from the recruiter and they were like, we'd love to welcome you to, you know, the final round interview on campus down in Menlo Park. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you must have been absolutely shocked at that, right? Totally shocked. I wouldn't have hired me <laughs> given my performance. Not even, but three months later and all you were asking for, I think, was another chance to maybe do the equivalent and they've moved you on to the next round. It was crazy. I honestly was shocked. And so I did like a three hour interview down on campus. I met a lot of other people I was going to work with on the team. I had another kind of technical interview, but it was more of like a conceptual one, like just whiteboarding some ideas. And that one I felt a lot more prepared for, <laughs> did a lot better. Then they hired me. And honestly, like I really love my work at GitHub right now. But to date, I happened to join Facebook at a very unique time in the company's history, a very special time. And I got to participate in being one of the main team members launching the live video API. So I was working with a very, you know, tight knit group of people on the launch. We actually are still friends to this day. Like I follow <laughs> these people on Instagram and Facebook and we send each other Christmas cards. So it was a really special time. We got to launch the live video API. I even got to build a couple of features to add to the live video API. API. So I added a feature that age gates any videos that might have disturbing content from users under 18. It adds like a graphic overlay and pauses autoplaying. You know, this was a, a feature that was being requested by a lot of our news partners because it was at the time when there was a, a man who was scaling the Trump Tower and they wanted to live stream it to Facebook, but we didn't really know how he was going to make it down safely um, and if anything might happen. And so that was a feature that became, you know, really pertinent for news folks. And so I actually got to like contribute real live code to that API. 
I worked at Facebook almost two years, and then I, I took a brief hiatus um, and worked at a nonprofit that works with high school students. It must be amazing and so fulfilling to work on something that is still in production and getting used today. Like anytime you see a feed like that, you know that some of your code is running, for example. I'm sure that's a really special feeling. There's so much to unpack there. I want to take a quick sort of pause in the kind of career history. I mean, the first thing that you mentioned that I'm sure people listening will be very interested in is how you've managed to leverage LinkedIn to get so much success being reached out to by companies and finding work there. You said even though you had applied to other companies, you've only ever got jobs through LinkedIn. What was the story there? Are you very good at optimizing your profile? I think that has to be it. So the thing that kind of turned me on to it, which happened after I'd already gotten three jobs, was when I went to Facebook for my in-person interview, they actually had a printout of my LinkedIn profile. I never ended up sending in a resume or anything like that, the people who were interviewing me were holding my LinkedIn profile in front of them. And so I think I just kind of realized that recruiters are on LinkedIn all day, all the time. They're putting in all sorts of different buzzwords and keywords and all these things to kind of help, you know, narrow down the competition. And I've been on a lot of people's LinkedIn's where, you know, they come and approach me and my messages and they say, Hey, you know, I, I've been trying to find a job for a year or for six months and I can't find anything. Like, what do you suggest? And I take a look at their LinkedIn. They have no words in there at all. They've just put in that they were, you know, a teacher at X school, but they don't say anything about what they did as a teacher or they don't say anything about what they did as a, you know, whatever their previous role was. And they don't have any indication that they're interested in looking for new jobs in a new industry. It might say very briefly at the top, you know, that they are open to work, but it's not enough just to put that open to work badge on your profile image. You need to have some information in the actual profile itself to help people discover you. And so writing a, a well thought out about section, kind of like a little bio about what you're doing, putting in your, you know, little tag underneath your name about what you're looking for if you're if you haven't, you know, yet broken into the industry or what you used to do, um, or companies you used to work for, that stuff I think all really helps. I noticed your bio on LinkedIn is in the third person. What was your thinking behind that? I'm actually looking at it right now and realize it's out of date. So go update your LinkedIn's everybody. But um, <laughs> I think I just decided that it felt more professional. You know, authors write the third person in the back of their books, you know, and when you're reading about someone who's going to give a talk at a conference, it's usually a bio in the third person. Referring to myself in the third person felt less like a dating profile, frankly. I mean, it is, it's kind of what it is. It's like a professional dating profile, but you know, instead of dating, it's like, I'm trying to also appear like I'm a more professional. So I just, I think that just kind of communicates a little bit more of that professional look versus like, hi, I'm, you know, a program manager and I like long walks on the beach, you know, it's <laughs> just like I do, but that might not get me uh, interviews the same way as telling you what, you know, my greatest strengths are. And, and you know, hey, some people do that and it totally works for them. And that's awesome. And I, I admire people who can be so colloquial in that way. I don't feel as confident being that colloquial. So this feels more comfortable for me. But it's a very good bit of advice because you do want to celebrate yourself a little bit in your bio and explain all the reasons why you're awesome and a company should get in touch potentially. That could just be your potential, right? To do with your dedication to the subject when you're new. But some people feel a bit sheepish writing about themselves in the first person. Person. That way, writing in the third person gives you permission to do it, I think. It's really cool. I think either could work. You tend to see more established folks, I think, writing in the third 
person uh, exactly for the reason you described, I think, which is that they might be cited. They might give a talk or write in a book or something like that. Um, but either it's totally valid. I think that's really cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And I think too, like a, a thing to note is kind of like applying to university, you want to use the about section to say something that's not already being said in your uh, resume section. So I don't use that section to say, I delivered X number of features on this product, or I've worked on this number of teams. I actually use it to be more of a um, opportunity to communicate how I work, what I value, use that section to kind of communicate more about who you are as a person and what it would be like to have you on someone's team. So you're kind of giving people the opportunity to imagine what it would be like working with you. So for example, I say, you know, that some of my greatest strengths are developing high performing systems and delivering well-researched and clear strategies. I also mentioned that I am an enthusiastic teammate and I'm a quick learner and a diligent worker and that I value empathy and self-awareness as a means of communication. If you're a hiring manager and you're somebody who is looking for a good culture fit, as well as someone who's able to deliver high performing systems, like I'm your person, right? I've, I've given you literally all of the words that you need to be like, oh, this is someone who I'd like to maybe have a conversation with. If you can summarize in just, you know, say two to four sentences, what makes you great and how is it like to work with you? That's a compelling beginning and opening. And I think it grabs people's attention enough to start looking further down the page to be like, okay, well, what's your experience and what projects have you worked on? And at least, you know, begin a conversation. It's just there to start the conversation. It's not there to explain every single nitty gritty detail. That's what the individual work experience sections on your LinkedIn and resume profile can come into things. By the way, just while you were talking in the background, I was remembering what you said about writing to the recruiter, essentially uh, thanking them for their time and, and explaining that you'd like another opportunity to demonstrate your abilities. Is sending a follow-up email like that standard practice or is it something that you would do judiciously? I've actually done that with every opportunity that I've been excited about. I personally email each person that I speak with in an interview cycle with the exception of the recruiter. I don't email the recruiter usually because you're in communication with them pretty frequently and they're letting you know about things. So you're already kind of emailing back and forth with them. But I do send a follow-up email to all of the interviewers, you know, the people that have taken the time out of their workday to talk to me. I also try to do a little bit of homework about the people that are going to interview me. So I ask, you know, when I come into an interview, I ask the recruiter, you know, who am I going to be speaking with? Can you tell me a little bit more about their role? And I definitely look them up on LinkedIn and I, or, you know, if they have a website and try to get a little bit more information about them. The reason why I do that is not to be creepy, but really to show that I'm invested and so that I can ask a question during the interview that is thoughtful and that is indicates that I care. So for example, if I'm talking to a product manager who has shipped a feature recently and I see that they shipped it, I'll try to think of a question and I'll have it prepared ahead of time. I'll try to think of a question that makes sense to ask them about their experience. What did you learn from shipping X feature or like something that I, I really would like to know about their experience at you know X company or something like that. 
I've had people who have wanted to talk to me as someone who works at GitHub who have, you know, clearly come prepared with some questions. But what's actually been really interesting is there are people who come prepared with questions where you can tell that they are curious and they want to genuinely know your answer. And then there are some people who ask you questions. And then when you're watching them on Zoom, they almost look like they've kind of zoned out or they're just kind of like they're asking the question because that's the right thing to do. But then they don't actually seem like they are actually listening. And then when you finish speaking, they're like, "Mm, that sounds interesting. I have another question for you. And then they just keep going. And it's like, oh, I see you've prepared like three questions that you feel like you need to ask me, but you're not actually like we're not having a dialogue about them. You're not asking any follow up questions. And so I think that actually doesn't show very much awareness or curiosity. Or even just listening, right? Frankly, yeah, just listening. And I think that's something I advise. I I see it mostly in younger developers and not just developers, but people who are interested in getting into technology. My biggest, you know, advice really is like, if you're going to ask a question, if you're taking the time of somebody who's interviewing you, I strongly recommend that you do come prepared with like maybe three questions, but also be comfortable with not asking all those questions. It's not about getting the right number of questions in. It's about starting a question and then allowing it to unfold into a conversation. And a conversation requires listening and and actually, you know, maybe you change your question because that person interviewing you says something that piques your interest. You're like, oh, wait, that sounds so interesting. Like, can you tell me more about, you know, about how that happened? Or like, if they tell a story about something, what did you do when that happened? You know, like, that's a better follow-up question than like, oh, thanks for sharing. Uh, I have another question. And then just like moving on to the next one, because that's on your list. It seems very transactional, doesn't it, when you do that? Yes, it communicates that almost right off the bat. And it's very off-putting. I think, yes, coming prepared, knowing a little bit about the work that the person who's interviewing you has done is great. But then being willing to relax a little bit and be curious and ask follow-up questions that are thoughtful that actually relate to what that person shared with you, that's more communicative of your ability to be a good listener as a teammate and to be a good partner and someone who's going to ask good questions, who's able to be resilient and not too stringent on something. You're able to kind of go with the flow. I think that's actually a really great characteristic to have as well as um, communicates that to the interviewer. You're absolutely right. I think when a lot of people interview, they focus a lot on the technical part. Like, yes, I can code. Yes, I know the answer. Maybe think there'll be a separate interview phase where it's more about culture ad and culture fit and all these kind of things. But the truth is when you're interviewing, every touch point is part of the interview, whether it's that initial screening call with the recruiter, your email coordination, your sort of punctuation, grammar, responsiveness, attention to detail, whether they ask you a question, do you actually answer it or do you you pussyfoot around it? I like the idea to come to an interview with a series of questions, hopefully about the product and the work, not like too personal, but that's obvious. Right. Of course. Yeah. I, I guess I thought that would be obvious, but we should maybe be explicit. Yeah. So, I saw on your Facebook profile, you have a dog. How, how are they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you're selling a bike on Facebook marketplace. Just like, I'm not interested in you anymore. No, but there's plenty on LinkedIn, to be honest, to work with. But are there any other tips you can share? I don't know if this will resonate with anyone in this community, but I actually took time off from the tech industry, partially to work for a nonprofit that works with high school students, completely, you know, unrelated to tech. But also I was a stay-at-home mom for two years. 
getting back into technology after taking really like four years away from tech, I was very nervous about how it would look to get back into the industry. Some advice that a recruiter gave to me that was really helpful was, um, you know, at the time when I was a stay-at-home parent, my last work experience was, you know, in 20, end of 2019. And then I didn't say anything else on my LinkedIn. I just, it was like, that was it. And this recruiter actually reached out to me from GitHub, uh, you know, and was like, Hey, like I saw your profile and I just wanted to, you know, talk and see if you're around and if you wanted to, you know, have an interview. And I was like, yes, I do. And when I finally got on the phone with him, I was like, how did you, you know, find me? Why did you reach out to me? And he's like, well, to be honest, I didn't actually know because I hadn't seen any updates since 2019. He's like, it's a little morbid, but he's like, I wasn't sure if you were even alive. I was like, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Um, and so he advised to put in my bio that I was a homemaker or a stay-at-home mom or whatever the case may be, but that that was a job that I had in the present. Something I didn't realize is that, you know, sometimes recruiters will filter people out on LinkedIn based on who is actually currently employed or what you have, a, you know, if you have an open job right now and you can say, you know, from this date to the present. I didn't know that. Um, so I didn't have anything because I was like, well, I'm just a stay at home parent. I don't have an actual job right now. Proving that age old adage that to get a job, you should have a job. I know it's like not even fair, right? I know for a lot of the community listening here that, you know, you're, you're looking to break into the tech industry. So it's not fair, right? Like, how can I say this? I, I have this job when I, I don't yet. Um, my advice is to put that you're a freelancer and then, you know, just put freelance as your current job and then list some of the projects you're working on. My other advice, usually for people who are trying to get started in the industry, I always advise people to start a project, either your own personal website, and you can have a tab for this project, or you can create a website for the project itself. And you walk through the project and the app or whatever you're building as if it is a real thing that you're working on for a company. If you're creating a dog walking service app or whatever, even if you don't know how to use wireframing or, or anything like that, just sketch it out on a piece of paper what your app is going to look like. You can upload some photos and talk about the process. Share your process and your thinking around this app you're building. So I decided I wanted to build a dog walking app because I needed help finding someone who would walk my dog while I was at work. These were the three things that I thought I really needed for my MVP. Here's some sketches of what I'm, you know, what I think this app should look like. Here's the GitHub repository where my code lives. If you're interested in taking a look and you want to contribute to it, um, you know, kind of an open source thing. Um, and just keep working on that project as if it is your real full-time job as you continue to interview. Because the thing that was most interesting was just how many interviews I had where people I was talking to had done the homework on me too. They had looked at my LinkedIn, they'd seen my projects, they had clicked on my projects and the websites for them and had played around with some of the stuff and were like, this is really cool. Or like, tell me more about this project you made. I know, you know, it's kind of discouraging at first feeling like there's a lot of competition in the tech industry, especially right now. And yet, I think being able to show that you are proactive, that you're self-motivated, have direction and explain your thought process on how you're working on something and tell me more about the way that you're thinking about building this. Why did you make the design decisions you did? Why did you avoid certain things? That is showing people how you work. It's showing people how you think. And that's what I think interviewers and teams want to see. The actual technical skills are like anybody can learn those 
skills, frankly. I, I really believe like anyone can learn how to code. Um, but what makes you an excellent engineer is actually what makes you um, and, and an excellent teammate is your humanity. It is your paying attention to uh, how people think, what's useful to people, what's not useful to people, what's a bad user experience and what's a great user experience. All of those things you have to consider when you're building technology. Um, and, and that's something that I think is a really valuable asset to any team. And so if you can show that and communicate that in your LinkedIn profile and projects you're working in, that actually is more valuable than just finding someone who knows a coding language. Laura, I'm really excited to learn a bit more about your journey at GitHub. But first, what do you say we do a round of quick fire questions? Hit me with them, Alex. I'll go easy on you, Murray. Okay. <laughs> what was your first coding language? Ruby. Interesting. You still say Ruby after starting with C, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to count C because that one was, a yeah. My The one that I first fell in love with was Ruby. How about that? <laughs> what about when you're coding? Do you listen to music? And if so, what's your go-to? I generally like a lo-fi beats playlist on Spotify because then you can get into that like groovy beat, frankly. But I have also coded to pop music and I admit that I, I love country music. So sometimes I also listen to country music when I code. Yeah, I find lo-fi is great when you, you're working on like a hard task. You don't want something too distracting. Yes. If you're confident, you know what you're doing, crank up the Taylor Swift. Exactly. What do you drink to fuel your coding sessions? Tea, coffee, or water? Usually water with electrolytes inside. If it's in the in the morning, I drink one cup of coffee, so I will drink that too. Is there anyone you look up to or follow in the tech community that we should know about and can maybe follow and check out after this episode? I'd say that the person that had a really big impact on me and means a lot to me is actually GitHub's former COO, Erica Brescia. She's now an investor uh, with Redpoint Ventures, but she has been kind of a mentor to me. She gives a lot of great advice, especially to people who are just getting started with their startup and they have app ideas and, and founders. Uh, she gives a ton of great advice on her Twitter feed there and on her LinkedIn. Maybe a lesser known name compared to some of the big names in tech, but she's meant a lot to me. She was my VP when I got hired back into technology at GitHub. So I am very grateful to her. What do you think about AI taking over coding, seeing that you work on GitHub, who are known for GitHub Copilot as well? You know, what's so interesting to me is I feel like AI has tried to have a moment for like the last 20 years, <laughs> but it actually feels like AI is going to actually have its moment now. It feels like it's not just the techies that are talking about it. We're, we're getting like just regular people in any old industry talking about it too. And what's crazy is that my friend's father-in-law is one of the fathers of AI back in the 70s. And so I was talking to him about this just last week. And I kind of asked him the same question and he, you know, so I don't want to take credit for his answer, which I'm about to give, but I do think that AI will change the industry and I do think it will change the way our world works. Very much like the internet and Apple and iPhones changed our, our world. Change is scary, right? And we don't know what to expect and we're afraid that you know, it'll take over our jobs and our and all these things. And I think there are going to be some industries that are significantly impacted and, and revolutionized by AI. With that being said, I also think that it's easy 
easy to see what you might lose. It's not always so easy to see what you might gain. And so I think that with AI, sure, there might be some things that might be lost because it's faster and easier to have a computer do it. But there are going to be many things that computers can't do that I think only humans can do. And I do believe there will be more opportunities available in AI uh, or with uh, as a result of AI entering the, the chat, so to say, than we can maybe even see now. We're running out of time here today, but I did want to make sure we come back to your experience at GitHub. I interrupted you earlier when you were telling us about your work experience because I just had this huge list of tangential questions. But I'm really curious to know how you got started at GitHub, what you're up to and what you're excited about in the future. So I've been at GitHub over two years now. I was hired as a partner engineer and I really kind of helped develop our secret scanning partner program. While I was a partner engineer, we added over 50 new tokens to GitHub's private public repo scanning product, which ended up driving like nearly 4 million in revenue. So um, it was a really fun project to be a part of. I actually decided to take a little bit of time to be a product manager. So I had two opportunities to join two different product teams and I really wanted to see what that would be like. And so I became a product manager for a team called Special Projects at GitHub. We were a team that was focused on kind of shipping these sort of bite-sized features that would bring delight to customers. And, and to our developer community. So feature requests that had long been requested, you know, as far back as like 2015, and yet feature teams had, you know, not had time yet to deliver on them. We would try to ship things in a two to four week time span and turn things around and kind of surprise customers and deliver on feedback and features that had been requested for a long time. I loved doing that. It was a great experience. I learned so much. As we continued to do it, we actually ended up like doing such a good job that feature teams were like, wait, we want to be able to ship some of these things too. And so feature teams started taking on some of those, you know, we called them tiny wins, but like kind of some of these quick release uh, little bits of joy to customers and developers. And we kind of started running out of things we could do. And so then the team was disbanded and I was absorbed into our developer relations team. And I now manage our third-party global community event strategy and presence. And I also just launched about a month ago, GitHub's first speaker bureau. So it's a program for hubbers of all experience levels to share their knowledge of GitHub and our products in a diversity of customer-facing situations. So conferences, workshops, seminars, Seminars, executive briefing calls, etc. And it's a program that includes mentorship and public speaking training and training resources, presentation resources. So it's been a really fun thing to be working on. Very different than what I thought I'd be doing, but um, but I'm having a really good time. Isn't that amazing? Like that's such an exciting role. And it all started with learning to code all those years ago at Bootcamp. I'm sure it's been really difficult to in a role like this or get started there if you didn't have that coding background. Yeah, I think the thing to take away from like my experience and just from participating in coding boot camps or participating in a program like Scrimba is just the most valuable asset that I think you get from participating in something like this is not the language itself. It's not, you know, whatever coding language you're picking up or framework or all of that. Those things always change. Like, you know, Ruby was the hot ticket language in 2013 and now it's definitely not. It's less about the language. It's less about the frameworks that you're learning 
learning. And it's more about the experience of being open-minded, thrown into something you don't know and being really curious about it. So you could be thrown into a code base you're not familiar with. You could be thrown into a language you're not familiar with. You could be thrown into a section of technology that you're not familiar with, but coming and approaching it with a curious mindset, with an open mindset, and then also with a confident mindset, not confident in the sense that you're arrogant and you're like, oh, I can figure this out, but confident in the sense like, oh, I'm feeling a little nervous. I've never looked at this code base before. I've never worked with this language before, but I know I can do it. I know I can do it. I know I can ask questions of people, whether on my team, people in my cohort, mentors, folks like that to kind of help me. You can always use pair programming as a way to learn something new. I learned so much when I worked with other engineers on a project. If someone's to look through my my resume, I literally jumped around into all different sides of tech. Like I had no experience in Salesforce and I had to learn a whole new language like Salesforce Apex computer, like programming language I only ever used there. And then I got hired at Twitter and I'd never been in the ad tech industry before. And so I was learning everything about ad tech and like what is a publisher versus a network. And I was learning Java and Objective-C on the fly as I was building these SDKs. And then I got hired at Facebook and I had no experience with live video. I'd never done live video before. I never really built it or been part of supporting an API to that extent and launching video partners. And now at GitHub, you know, I've already in my two years at GitHub, I was working in secret scanning. I'd never done cybersecurity before. And then I was in product and I'm like shipping all sorts of developer tool features in product. And now I'm managing third-party global community events and learning about how to do that and like manage budgets and manage speaker bureaus and, and connect people to executive briefing calls and all these different things. Like the only through line in my whole journey is curiosity, being open to learn and being committed to to knowing that no matter what you throw at me, I'm going to be able to learn it quickly. I'm going to do everything I can to be responsible. I'm going to ask good questions. I'm going to be uh, ask for help when I need it and not be afraid to admit when I don't know something. And I really feel like that has been the most valuable thing I could have learned from a boot camp or from anything uh, like these these wonderful programs like Scrimba is just, it's not about the language. It's not about the frameworks. It's not about the actual technology skills. It's about being curious and open and doing your very best and asking for help and getting supporting your surrounding yourself with support to really be successful. And I really think that anybody can have a beautiful and flourishing career in technology um, when you keep those concepts in mind. Oh, that's such a powerful key takeaway to end on. But I just have to ask, you described something clearly that you didn't call out by name, I think, which was this humility to be new at something. And I hear that. I think when you join a company, that's the hardest place to demonstrate that humility because if you've been hired, you know that they know your strengths. They should probably know some of your weaknesses too, but you want to make a good impression. How do you combat that eagerness and ability to learn with sort of feeling like an imposter? Like maybe you're learning too much, right? Like maybe you should know more before you start a job. I think this is a common anxiety. I mean, I've experienced imposter syndrome on every job I've ever had. Um, So I don't know if it ever goes away. And from what I've talked to other engineers, principal engineers even, um, they have told me that they experience the same. I think what's actually really beautiful about hearing that from other engineers and experiencing it myself is that imposter syndrome is a universal experience. So if you're experiencing it, you're not alone. Everyone, even you know the most senior of people, CEOs, I believe, have all experienced imposter syndrome at one point or another on the, in their career. And um, it can be really devastating. It can be debilitating for sure. I think if you're 
experiencing that, if you can talk to somebody and just be honest with, you know, a mentor, a friend, an engineer in a similar position, maybe in your cohort or something like that, who you can be transparent with. I think that's really beautiful and hopefully can bring some relief. At the same time, I think that Sometimes people try to handle imposter syndrome by overcompensating in confidence and saying, well, I, I got this, or they don't want to ask any questions because they're too nervous. Um, I actually think that's worse. You're not fooling anybody, you know, when you don't know something, especially if you're new to the industry. Somebody hired you knowing that you didn't know everything, but they saw something in you that was good raw materials. So have confidence that somebody saw something in you. If you really need to know, I think if you have a manager or something, you've just been hired, you can ask. You can say, hey, you know, thank you for hiring me. I'd love to know what it is you saw about me either in my interview or in this first month of working here that made you think like that I would be a good hire. I'd like to capitalize on that. And I'm worried I'm going to be a little bit, you know, new to this code base. Do you have any suggestions? Do you know someone I could maybe be connected to who could maybe give me a, an overview of what I'm looking at or someone who I could ask some, you know, questions to if I get stuck or something? Get help. We all have been here. We know what it feels like. The worst thing I think is to be someone who's new at something and feeling that imposter syndrome and to experience it alone and to be paralyzed from asking for help. There are a lot of really wonderful, very talented, very incredible people in this industry. I'm just amazed how who are so excited to mentor and to help and to guide and to support. Like there's some very empathetic people in this industry. And so I believe you'll find them here, um, but you have to ask for them and be mindful of their time, but they're there to help you yeah just showing that vulnerability can reward you in some very surprising ways laura there is so much insight in this episode i really appreciate your time today i know everybody listening does as well thank you so much for joining me on the scrimber podcast it's been a pleasure thank you so much i had a really great time talking with you too that was the scrimber podcast episode 114 subscribe for more because we are a weekly show and there's a new episode every tuesday Check out the show notes for the resources for this episode, as well as the ways you can connect with Laura and Alex's Twitter handle if you want to tweet at him directly. Avignon, and we'll see you next week.